Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. So at 1914, when the gold standard had been, the classical gold standard had been fully developed and was at its zenith, right before World War I breaks out, these are sort of the, the, the financial conditions are this. There's a superstructure of global credit and it's based on gold, but only a small fraction can actually be mobilized for payments. Therefore, you have all of this investment, all of this trade, all of this capitalism, but it all relies on credit. So in order for payments to continue, Lenders have to continue lending. Is it starting to sound familiar? Because as we get into what happened to the gold standard at the outbreak of World War I, this is where I feel like the similarities between the breakdown of the gold standard and where we are today are so eerie. At every turn, I'm like, I mean, I, I find it disquieting. So World War I breaks out and Karl Helfrich, who's the German finance minister, uh, he estimated it would require about 2 billion marks to finance the war and knew that it would have to come through printing because the German concept, the German plan for World War I was Russia came to the aid of Serbia, then Germany would attack France. And by the time they had to do it really fast, basically. And they didn't have time to collect the money and pass the taxes. And they knew that it wouldn't be proved. So they just printed it. And when they did, I mean, I'm not going to, we, we've talked about this a lot in this series already about the game theory of abusing credit to pay for war. So we've set up that it happened. So it just happened almost instantly. And Pal Yu writes, century old social and political institutions had crumbled within a few years the infinitely complex fabric of international economic relations, which had grown slowly over a period of more than a century, had been torn beyond repair and the vast amount of paper and public debts 
created to finance the war resulted at first in the short-lived post-war boom of 1919 to 1920, and then the acute collapse of 1920 to 1921. Most important, however, was the change in attitude of the people, especially in Europe. The faith in the self-equilibrating forces of the economy and the belief in the, in the ability of the individual to shape his own destiny had been severely shaken by the cataclysmic events of the war in the immediate post-war years. The acute inflation-deflation cycle, occurring as it did within the short span of three or four years, produced both a traumatic shock and a widespread demand on both sides of the Atlantic for greater economic stability. If governments could raise and spend billions to finance war, why should they not be able to use their power to assure greater post-war prosperity for all? Quite imperceptibly, the emphasis of monetary policy shifted from protecting international and thus indirectly domestic monetary stability to an attempt to assure domestic prosperity. I mean, let's just talk about that for a second. This, when I, I, I do find it super weird the way in which everything he's writing rhymes with what we're going through today. What in what ways in particular? Like I see that clearly it's coming apart, but which other parallels are you identifying here? I think that here? The, the 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 fear of inflation and deflation at exactly the same time mm -hmm. also pertaining to the last thing we talked about was. This, the loss of the uh, the uh, the loss of the belief in the individual to mm -hmm. shape their own destiny. Mm -hmm. That I mean, I feel that I feel that acutely. Like no matter how much I earned or how much I saved, I couldn't buy a house. Couldn't couldn't like go one step further. It felt like um, it felt impossible. I felt kind of I felt kind of economically hopeless. Hmm. And so him talking about that was like, um, it, it really rang a bell psychologically with me. And I'd never heard that there was um, a fear of both inflation and deflation at the same time that that had happened before. I just knew I was feeling that today. And then lastly, there was this, wide, this widespread feeling like, hey, governments can just create all the money they want and everyone will be prosperous. That's just doesn't feel... Right. There seems to be a movement for that and a movement that I was behind at some point in a former life, but which I now see as totally misguided just because it's impossible. Yeah. It, it doesn't work that way. This is uh, related, kind of tangential, but I just recorded a second episode of Dr. Robert Malone, and we focused on mass psychosis this time. And he, in describing... He's, he's sharing this work sort of secondhand. It's not his work, but he's studied it from uh, another doctor, Matthias, I believe is his name. And it, one of the precursors to a mass psychosis is this free-floating anxiety. Like there's a generalized anxiety that no one, everyone, most people experience, but no one can really put their finger on. And I've been putting forth this hypothesis that it's it's got to be related to property right violations, which, you know, fiat currency inflation is a major one. Um, people are actually losing the ability to control their own destiny, right? When you, yeah. when you can't store the fruits of your labor reliably, 
across, you know, and move them across time and space, then what the hell can you do? You can't do anything. You can just survive. Um, there's no savings mechanism, right? There's no way to build towards something, to build towards some valued future you may have for yourself. So I think that, um, yeah, maybe we're, you know, people then were experiencing this psychosis of not having a grip on economic reality because they actually didn't, right? You couldn't, as you described, no matter how much money you saved up, you couldn't get to your goal of buying a house. That's got to be maddening at some point, right? At some level where it's like, no matter what. Because it's happening in slow motion. It's like, you yeah. think you're going to get there this year. You think you're going to get there, but then prices increase just a little bit. And, and the goalpost um, moves. Yeah. And, and, and as, um, as a, a few authors I've read say the same thing at the beginning of an inflation, the reaction, everyone's reaction is the same. They see asset prices becoming more expensive and they say, oh, well, then I'll wait to buy it until prices come down. Mm -hmm. So they increase their cash reserves, which actually prolongs the inflation Yep. Yeah. and makes it, makes it worse. But your first thought is, okay, well, price will come down. I'll, I'll save for a little bit longer, but prices then never come down. Right, because that also, that people increasing their cash reserves, creating more reservation demand for money, gives the central bank the false confidence to print into. They're like, well, we printed all this money the past few years. There's not, there hasn't been a lot of inflation. I'm thinking like post-2008, right? Yeah. And the central bank will exactly. then overshoot. Right. And then there's some psychological threshold where people are like, oh, shit, you know, prices are never coming back down. I now need to start divesting cash and, and inflation's happening. So now I'm in a bad position. So mm -hmm. I, I now need to divest cash holdings and get into assets. And that actually triggers the inflation inflationary spiral. Right. The, the it, asset inflation, a, a lot of the um, central bank printing is not inflationary, is completely dependent on separating asset inflation from inflation. Yes. People say, well, central bank printing isn't inflationary because, oh, you know, well, assets go up, but things don't go up. But right. you can't do that. Which is arbitrary. Asset price inflation is inflation, full yes. stop. Full stop. Bond prices going up is inflation. Mm -hmm. That's why bond prices went up, inflation. Mm -hmm. They printed the money, the prices went up. I feel like, you know, this, like, you talk about, this is what this, you're talking about the beginning stages of mass psychosis. I have felt. I was at a Bitcoin conference in the middle of the desert and all these people came to the desert. I don't, why did they come to the desert to talk about Bitcoin? I feel like, you know, the beginning of like a monster movie, like sometimes starts with um, a scene of a bunch of extras and they're at a barbecue and uh, they don't, they don't know they're in a monster movie, they're extras <laughs> and uh, they're having a good time. And then, you know, it's a monster movie. And then there's like a rumbling or something way over the horizon. And then they, they cut to like one extra who sort of stops and squints like, hey, what's what's that? What's what's that thing? I no one else sees it, but the one, the first extra who notices it sees or feels something coming. I'm like, I'm that, I feel like I'm that person amongst my friends who like, like has a hot dog in his hand <laughs> and is at a barbecue and stops and looks at the horizon and says, what, what's that? That's that feeling of that general anxiety, like something's coming. And I've had that for a long time. Yeah, and then it triggers the ripple effect, right? 
someone sees you looking out on the horizon, so they then glance out on the horizon, and then they detect it as well. And then you've got, you know, two people now. It's kind of like the back to the old syringe analogy you gave, where it just becomes like a network effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I looked around at the people at this Bitcoin conference, and I'm like, oh, they all feel they all they all feel something coming as well. That's mm-hmm. why they're here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's very interesting that this is one thing I commonly refrain about Bitcoin. People always want to know, like, you know, what is it? What's it's always talking about the modern technological innovation aspect of it, but it's like that's almost worthless to talk about until you really have this firmer understanding of how we got to here, right? And it seems like Bitcoiners, at least, if you're a Bitcoiner, you're more likely to have done that homework, which would be analogous to being more aware of what's out on the horizon, right? Yeah, right, right. That's the thread I find continuously among Bitcoiners. And and, and people who, when I see someone uh, tweeting about that Bitcoin is useless, I just feel like they had, they don't, they don't know any history. They must not know any history. They must be completely ignorant of anything that happened prior to ever 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Ever. Yeah. It's been just, there's you know, monetary debasement and or violation of property. It's almost like the norm of human history is crime. Like we call it government and we say, you know, it's meant to protect people from crime and it does, you know, presumably to some extent we've come a long way. But as we see the institution intended to insulate us from criminality is now criminal, right? It's now violating the property rights of people. So if you're, if you're ignorant of that historical norm, then yeah, of course, Bitcoin's useless why the dollar works my online banking works you know why think about it i don't see i don't see people say that they don't see any value in the electricity that bitcoin uses that's a value judgment and i do there were some phases in and and you know i i feel like it's sensational to talk about weimar and there was a period of time where i thought well that's just sensationalist i don't i don't think that's really going to happen here and yet I actually think I, I, I get Weimar vibes from the United States more and more. Oh yeah. It, it, it scares me a little bit. I used to think it was hyperbolic, but I don't. The, by the time that uh, world war, um, one was over the German ratio of expenses, their ratio of expenses to their non-borrowed income, meaning like the amount of money they spent compared to how much they actually took in mm. was 713%. Then, then they borrowed the rest. USA last year, expenses to non-borrowed income was 362%. We're not far. I mean, that's, that's less than a doubling. Right. And then we are in the same ratio of expenses to non-borrowed income. 
that number was sobering to me. And then here's another thing that I found really weird. The uh, president of the Reichsbank, his name was Rudolf Havenstein. He, he said that there was a loss of confidence in the foreign exchange markets due to the imposition of World War I reparations and that loss of confidence externally caused the German mark to depreciate relative to other currencies. And that is what caused domestic prices to rise. And that it was these exogenous forces which caused, mm. which necessitated that they print the money for the economy to keep going, not the other way around. In other right. words, he completely reversed causality and said, no, right. we're just printing the money that the economy needs, but the inflation was, was imposed upon us from outside. And that, and that to me, is exactly what the no it's the supply chain that's exactly no, what was imposed I was upon say. us supply chain disruptions yeah. causing price inflation just inverting causality in broad daylight and again preying on a generalized ignorance people are none the wiser if you have no understanding of that domain well, what else are you going to do except nod and agree mm -hmm. i mean to hear that the person in charge of the central bank was publicly claiming that the opposite of reality was the truth. Yes. When I've been very aware of that I think that's what's happening here in the United States, uh, it's that just people should be aware of those parallels. And that's like part of what I feel like makes this book so relevant and makes the gold standard relevant is that this book documents what happened at the, at the changing of a regime, at a monetary regime. Because that's where I feel like we are right now. I want to say I know that's where we are right now. We have to be. You, know, the, you hit it earlier, 300 plus percent global debt to GDP. It's irreconcilable without mm -hmm. some regime change. Um, you look at, there's a book that has some interesting graphs in it. Uh, it's much more detailed book about the Weimar inflation. It's called The Economics of Inflation. It was written in, I think, 31 or 36. I, I, I only read these older books now. They, they seem old books, books from the 30s, 40s, and 50s seem way more relevant than what I'm reading that's current. Um, so this book has some interesting charts in it. Uh, and um, it charts the dollar exchange rate and how the dollar exchange rate sort of breaks suddenly to the upside in the summer of 1919 in, in Germany. And it also charts the amount of uh, free-floating debt that the German government had and the volume of notes in circulation. The, the volume, and this is sort of why I think sort of like the money supply, people who focus too much on the money supply have it wrong and why inflation is a purely psychological state if you look at 1919, when the dollar exchange rate like goes parabolic, the volume of debt, volume of notes in circulation in the debt did not increase, but suddenly the dollar exchange rate did. And this is speculation, but the Treaty of Versailles was signed in 1919, which meant that yes, Germany, you lost the war. And 
a lot of people in Germany did believe they were going to win the war and did believe that the, the losers were going to pay for it and held their marks because they thought that they would, you know, inflation did happen during the war. I think people were aware that there was inflation, but they thought, oh, it's going to come back. And when the Treaty of Versailles was signed, suddenly, suddenly the value of the paper mark takes a nosedive. Mm. And reparation payments, they weren't even enforced until years later. Like uh, this book that we're talking about, Twilight of Gold, it's called Twilight of Gold Myths and Realities. And one of the myths that comes out of this period is that reparations is what sent Germany into a depression. But reparation, if you look at this, this chart, that of course no one can look at, but if you imagine a chart and that it is almost a, there's a gradual sloping line up and that's the dollar exchange rate. But then in July of 1919, it suddenly goes straight up parabolic. And you have another line that's parallel and that line just keeps going straight. And that's the volume of debt and the volume of notes in circulation. And something accounts for why suddenly the dollar exchange rate went way up and it wasn't reparations. So I think what's key is that there was a psychological shift. And again, there's no, there's no mechanical function. There's no one event that will shift a population into a hyperinflation. It's something that happens collectively within the consciousness of the people. Mm-hmm. And then it builds on itself. Yeah. So but, um, I mean, but to echo your earlier point, there was a lot of reservation demand for Marx in expectation of winning the war and imposing, I guess, tribute. Uh, on the loser to mm-hmm. pay for the war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Once that was basically nullified with the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, well, then people wake up to the reality that those marks are going to get depreciated to pay for the war they just lost. Yeah. There was um, a lot of turmoil within Germany as to, I mean, also, I, I, I don't want people to think about hyperinflations that they happen in countries full of rubes that don't know what's happening. That's the other thing. Mm-hmm. You think that in hyperinflation can't happen here because we, we've, we've got books about hyperinflations and we know that they happen. They happen, the, to, to study the, the, the intricacies of what was happening internally in Germany is like so relatable. They knew it was happening. Yeah. They tried so many ways to fix it. The problem is, is that in order to fix it, you have to have someone accept the cost. Mm-hmm. And that's where no one's willing to step up and pay the price. Once once the mold was broken by paying for something with debt, then no one was gonna pay for it after the fact. They tried um, to, to, to levy taxes that were indexed to the price of gold, which is not a bad idea, but those were killed. They tried changing the way that real estate taxes were valued, going from instead of um, going from 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 rent value to selling to nominal selling value, so they could levy property taxes based on actual nominal values. But property owners killed this. They tried taxes on farmers based on the price of cereal grains. Um, they even tried a compromise to have a. Uh, a forced loan of a billion gold marks to the government, but the people who would end up having to pay the loan uh, negotiated that the loan would be paid to the government at a fixed conversion rate of 70 paper marks to one gold mark. 
there were multiple devaluations that happened between the passage of the law, which it did pass, and when it was actually paid. So by the time that this forced loan was paid, it was completely negligible because they they had the the the, the payers of the forced loan had already inflated their way out of it. It's um, such a show so, game, you know. Just, yeah. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. Just on the point of disbelief in a U.S. hyperinflation, I think it's just a combination of recency bias and maybe American exceptionalism mm -hmm. that we've somehow learned from the lessons of history and we're better than other countries. But that, that false confidence leads to like probably contributes to the generalized ignorance about money, um, which I guess you could say is also exacerbated by the university system, right? We don't, I mean, I have, a, I have a master's degree in accounting and finance. We didn't learn about any of this shit, none of it, zero. It's just government is God, it can issue money and take money out of circulation. That's how the economy works. You don't learn about the opportunity cost that government faces. That's it's 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 a stunning omission, and your your education was worthless. Basically, yeah. I mean, to this end, um, I kid, but because I would like to learn accounting, to be honest, I think accounting is pretty sweet, and I'd like to know it better. But that you weren't given a basis is, um, I agree. It's both criminally negligent and compounds the problem. And kind of brutally ironic that you're learning this quote unquote language of business, which is what they call accounting, that's clearly spoken in money or denominated in money. 
yet you never learn what money is. You never learn. It's just taken to be, it's just taken uh, at face value or on assumption that it's a thing that the government can create or destroy. That is a trick that was played on us gradually over the last hundred and three years. Mm -hmm. So as the war, as the war, you know, I've already talked a little bit about post-war, but even as the war was going on, the idea of deficit financing became suddenly institutionalized in Europe in a way that it hadn't been. And the creditor countries, they found that they could, they could actually create money to lend to other people. So long as no one, no one, once convertibility was killed, you could lend as much as you wanted. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the, um, everyone was, was, they were, there were, there were, there were two things happening. There was this, there was this kind of a schizophrenic feeling, which is people were trying, they, gold was still valuable and they were trying to attract gold, remove it from circulation, keep anyone from having any and preventing any from leave the country, leaving the country, but then also print money and deficit finance, everything that was happening. Mm. And so, um, everyone collectively took gold out of circulation. And at the same time, you know, prices went up, um, prices went up a hundred, 200% during the war. And then after the war, there was a slow realization that the new credit structure of the world was going to be built on these new prices. And there was this, the, the, the commitment mechanism of gold is that once you break convertibility, you have to resume convertibility at the previous parity at the previous price. Okay. And I think there was, Pally says there was a sense that, well, um, that's going to be hard because we built up all these industries. World War One was so gigantic in its scope that we had to build up all these industri industries, even though they weren't economical, mm -hmm. just for our survival. And we had to pay people more and they're not going to accept a pay cut anymore. And so we're going to have to build a new credit structure on the new price level. And so we can't resume parity at the old level. This is how he writes about it. During the war, governments gave scant thought to the monetary aftermath. They had conscripted the central banks into the service of their respective treasuries to provide them with cash and to manage the national debt. Managing the national debt meant manipulating the capital markets in order to facilitate placing government bonds issued in unprecedented volume. I mean, you'd think he's talking about 2020, 2021. He's not, I keep reading. The main objective was to keep interest rates down. With convertibility suspended, the discipline of the gold standard, that is the balance of payments and the operation of the gold points removed, much of the penalty of having a buffet, a oh, budget, much of the penalty of having a budget deficit vanished. The impartial near, the partial or near partial monetization of government obligations became an accepted technique of war finance. This break with the most respected fiscal and monetary traditions came about suddenly. There was practically no resistance. Laws limiting the extension of central bank credit through the monetization of government bonds were either canceled or disregarded, if not circumvented. Come on, that's that's exactly what we're living through right now. <laughs> this was written, this was written uh, 50 years ago. 
about the 19 or about about 1920. Mm-hmm. And it, it is exactly what's happening. Like to a, a line, it's exactly what's happening today. So partial or near partial monetization of government obligations became an accepted technique of war, COVID, finance. The managing the national debt meant manipulating the capital markets in order to facilitate placing government bonds issued in unprecedented volume. Look at the difference of uh, uh, 45 minutes ago, we were talking about self-liquidating short-term loans in order to fund uh, the merchant class. And now we're talking about something completely different on Mm -hmm. a different scale. Unlimited war financing, unlimited government revenue. Mm -hmm. This is when our system really broke. And I mean, scary to think about this particular period being such a parallel to today because the 20 years that followed this period are probably the worst in human history. Oh God, that's a terrifying thought. And again, I mean, I'm just going to echo this point again. If Mises is right and all government action is a misallocation of capital and that now this mechanism gives government effectively unlimited revenue or unlimited capacity to, to confiscate savings from citizens, no wonder the world went to shit over the next 20 years. It's almost an inevitable yeah. outcome. Yeah, the I think it's a um it, it it's it's cautionary to say the least what happens next. Because this concept that the central bank exists solely to monetize the government debt is um it's so large. The amounts are the amounts the amounts are so numbing. They really do they they sap your spirit. It, it saps your spirit to think that that a person, a person, a group. It's so it's so fucked to think that there's a group of people in a room that can conjure trillions when you think that a house, the average, I don't know what I don't know what the average house is. Four hundred thousand? Five hundred thousand in the United States? I don't know. It's an interesting note that Pally makes is that the fate of the gold standard in England was almost broken, not because of any shortage of gold, but because because of a surplus of coal and cotton. Because of um, the fate of coal miners. Because prior to World War One, coal mining was a really big share of British industry. But coal production had to be artificially propped up, well, not propped up, but they needed to make their own coal. I mean, they were getting it from Upper Silesia, which is part of Poland. Let me back up. England was making their own coal, but then they had to make more for the war. And it was already, the coal industry was already starting to become non-competitive before the war. Again, the parallels to COVID are crazy. You know, in 2019, I would have told you all the same stuff that there's government incentives are creating a deficit burden and propping up industries that shouldn't that, sh- that probably shouldn't exist mm-hmm. before world war 1 this is cracks in the system the english the british coal industry which was the biggest which was one of the biggest industries in the country was already starting to become non-competitive but then the war came and then there was a ton of demand 
And in fact, the coal industry was nationalized by the Munitions of War Act. So suddenly coal became a munition of war. Then they prohibited all strikes and lockouts. The Munitions of War Act prohibited any change in the level of wages and salaries. And despite that fact, despite the fact that you couldn't change salaries, there was a coal strike and the coal owners refused to pay more, but the coal miners struck and ultimately they negotiated an 18 and a half percent increase in wages. I, I tell the story about that, that uh, um, I'm bringing in a little extra research on the English coal industry, but you start to see the effect that these massive credit subsidies had on certain industries. And you had under a time of duress, you had coal miners negotiating an almost a 20% pay raise. I, I, I'm not at all saying that they shouldn't do that. They should do that. That's what happens when you, that's what happens when there's a sudden pulse of credit mm. and money into the economy. And it's not even England's fault because Germany did it to start the war. But right. this is this is what happened. And you can see it manifest in the wages of people in in all in every industry. Yeah, it's it's such a great view or perspective on really inflation. I guess you could say the inexorable link between inflation and warfare or coercion, right? It's like once yeah. somebody started it, as you said episodes ago you end up beholden to like the most corrupt link in the chain mm -hmm. that it just the inflation percolates outward even into the countries you're warring against um and it just becomes this like race to the bottom really right the race to debase that we're all mm -hmm. engaged in and we're still engaged in it today it's just done mm -hmm. more discreetly i guess or uh Clearly, we're not at war, but we have this, it seems like the post-nuclear paradigm peace we've established has turned the war, the tendency to go to war from being between nations to, from nations onto citizens, really. You know, they're just, the quote-unquote war on COVID, it's not, it's no such thing. It's a war on like entrepreneurship and property rights and all these other things that that underpin civilization so inflation's really 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 bad i guess is what i'm trying to say and once it starts it it pervades every aspect of society again i i this is the part in the story of the demise of gold that i i now understand it better and it scares me more and it feels like what i'm living through now mm -hmm. because um uh, you know, this was just a couple, it wasn't a couple months ago that suddenly there was all these like union strikes. Remember these union strikes was just a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. um, people are, uh, cost of living increases, social, social security cost of living increase, 6.9%. Um, it's no 20% to coal miners, but it's, it's, I think it's going to become that. Yeah. And it all comes from Unfortunately, it comes from when a central bank is forced to monetize the expenses of the government. That's right. Because of some emergency. Yeah, we're funding the worst business model we 
Let me just try to say this. The business model that allocates capital least intelligently is being basically awarded unlimited revenue. <laughs> right, right. Yes, totally. That's the, the, if you want a if you want a business to start wasting money, give them either unlimited time or an unlimited budget. Yes. Yeah, what I've heard it that time or money tends to fill the budget or or, or the the schedule or budget allotted to it, something like that. Yeah. It's times like this where like we, we go through this, we go through this, we keep peeling back layers. I feel like we've seen the deepest, darkest, worst parts, and you just find one more layer of that onion to peel back and just you know, makes you cry. I guess maybe we're cutting the onion because it's sad. It's just mm -hmm. this trap we've been caught in with money. It's like we keep thinking we can, this time is different, I guess, our way out of it, right? We can, oh, we'll just print a little bit this time and pass these laws and these regulations and it'll all be fine. And it never, ever, ever is. No, once once an inflation has begun, and this is again why I really do think Bitcoin is the answer. Once an inflation has begun, go back to the law of the exponential inflation. Mm. By the way, I listened to that episode. I I, I said the numbers wrong. If you create 102 percent, say you you have an economy humming along, and you're like, well, we're going to goose the economy, and we're going to create two percent inflation. So now you have 102 percent. When I, what I said in the episode was that next year you have to do 102% of 102%. Well, then then you actually need 4%. And the year after that, you need 8 So it, I I got the numbers wrong. But once you, once you begin an inflation, you have entered an inevitable exponential inflation. Once begun, that's the only way out. Yeah, a spiral towards illiquidity, right? Mm -hmm. Again, if liquidity is defined as the ability to not be liquidated <laughs> that credit structure has to liquidate at some point and the only route is the current now 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 the only the only way out is through the currency now and once again we land on the timeless wisdom of mises who says the moment you start to manipulate the currency there are only two possible outcomes it's the deflationary bust back to reality, as in you stop manipulating uh, currency or credit and you have just uh, have a bust back to supply and demand reality, or you continue the manipulation until you have the crack up boom, which is this you know inflationary surge, credit pulses, I think as Paul E. calls them, until the, the monetary system loses all meaning. You, you go into a hyperinflation. And that, I mean, that, the ultimate rock and a hard place appears to me to be totally inescapable. So the lesson to human beings is like, don't manipulate the money supply arbitrarily. Yet we have never, no human or group of humans has ever existed that's been able to be sustainably successful in that aim. Ergo, we must have Bitcoin. We have to have a money that none of us can mess with. Yeah, I mean, this is why, you know, this cycle of doubt, research, conviction, doubt, research, conviction, that, that's, that's the cycle. Mm -hmm. Because everything that 
I read and that I learn, I, I read, I get sad. It makes me feel hopeless, but then I realize possibly accidentally, I don't know, maybe Satoshi didn't even realize it, but accidentally it, it is the only answer. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Uh, I think that's a good place to put a button on it. Totally.